Welcome to Cato Audio for January 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, James Sensebrenner is incredulous at NSA arguments for more surveillance. Scientist Richard Lindzen wonders if science is progressing. Kalia Barnes questions TSA's respect for the rights of Americans. And Fed banker Charles Plosser says the Fed is going beyond its mandate. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As we record this, it is not yet 2014, uh, but as you listen to it, it, it certainly is. We're here to talk about uh, libertarian ideas this year and uh, with a special emphasis on uh, the Tea Party, whether it's a, a force for uh, libertarian ideas or, uh, or, or not. So here to talk about that with me, Daniel McCarthy, editor of the American Conservative Magazine, and David Bowes, executive vice president of the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So just to get started here uh, – David, there is, uh, we understand now uh, more than ever, well, not more than ever, but uh, more than in recent years that with the NSA scandal, the IRS scandal, with the uh, disastrous so far rollout of Obamacare, that people's faith in government to solve big problems is uh, waning. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and one of the interesting things about the scandals is that there were so many scandals in the spring that I can't even remember now. There was the IRS political targeting scandal. There was the Richard Windsor scandal where the head of the EPA was using a uh, fake email address, uh, presumably to avoid transparency and so on and so on. And they were all swept out of the newspapers, not just off the front pages, out of the newspapers entirely by the continuing revelations about the NSA. And certainly the discussion of the level of government spying and the level of government surveillance without any review by Congress with lying to Congress was the story of the year. And that surely increased public distrust of government. And then, as you say, the rollout of Obamacare now, I'm not sure how the latter is going to play in 2014 because, you know, the website's going to get fixed. They're klutzy about it, but you can fix a website. The question is, what is the impact of Obamacare going to be felt by people? How many of them are going to feel, I had a decent plan and now I don't, or this is very expensive, or this is th or I can't get the drugs and the doctors I want? And I think that's still playing out. Daniel McCarthy? The Tea Party has some very libertarian instincts, and in 2014, I think those instincts are going to be generally an electoral asset. Uh, but then it's a question of whether those instincts can be translated into policies that will be either satisfactory for libertarians or for uh, conservatives and other uh, political demographics. And that's where it becomes very difficult because it's hard to see what kind of leadership uh, the Tea Party is going to coalesce behind. They certainly like Rand Paul, and Rand Paul has a number of themes which seem to be not only very good for libertarians but also broadening both the libertarian and republican brands. Uh, we've seen this recently with his plan, for example, to fix Detroit. But then we have other um, Tea Party leaders, uh, people like Ted Cruz, for example, who do seem to be, to be rather more uh, in the uh, sort of standard Republican vein and who may not, for example, want to take the lead on something like uh, uh, controlling the NSA or addressing some of these other issues which are um, – which I think are new and developing and very interesting for libertarians but that often make um, sort of standard issue Republicans more nervous. Now, and about these – about the faith that Americans have in government more broadly to, to – take care of big problems, uh, how, does, how do you see that uh, influencing 
uh, if not electoral politics, at least the climate of ideas in the coming year? It's been a problem because it actually hasn't affected the climate of ideas as much as you would have liked. It's very clear that you have a visceral reaction against Obamacare, against the NSA spying, against any number of scandals and uh, humiliations that we've seen. But you don't have uh, this sense of intellectual uh, connection yet. Uh, it's very clear. Libertarians, of course, have had uh, ideas for a long time. But in terms of being able to inject those ideas into other parts of the conservative coalition, it's been very difficult. And you've seen a number of, uh, you know, sort of... Um, attempts at it. You've seen the creation of something called reform conservatism, for example, which is somewhat amorphous and ill-defined. But in terms of bringing everything together under a coalition umbrella on the right, uh, something that could actually win elections and then implement a program that would satisfy its key constituencies, uh, it seems as if the work hasn't been done yet. It's still at a visceral level rather than an intellectual one. Well, I do think uh, it's important that there are polls showing trust in government at its lowest point in a long time, maybe ever. Uh, the number of people saying they prefer smaller government to larger government, uh, very strong. Uh, the number of people who say government should do more to solve our problems, falling. So all of that, I think, is significant. And then I don't entirely agree with Dan that that hasn't had an intellectual impact because we saw a lot more in 2013 newspaper articles with libertarians in the headlines. Libertarian faction fights, libertarians energized by this sort of thing. It's not clear to me who the libertarians they're referring to in terms of politics are, but at least they're writing about libertarians. Um, I want to take issue with, with some of the way that Dan posed his, his, his last discussion, which is I don't really consider libertarians one of the factions on the right. I think libertarians are, in fact, different from the right. There are areas we can agree on. If we start talking about candidates, um, we're gonna, I'm going to outline all the ways that so-called libertarian candidates often aren't. And, and I do think there is a tendency on the part of the left, but sometimes even libertarians themselves, to treat libertarian as a term meaning ultra-conservative. So if you throw bombs at Obamacare, that makes you a libertarian, even if, like Ted Cruz, you're a social conservative, a religious conservative, a hawk, kind of a nationalist on on sovereignty issues. Um, Ted Cruz is a Reaganite, and there are worse things in the world than Reaganites, but it's not the same thing as a libertarian. All right, so when you, you talked about candidates, um, there is this current that is driven it, broadly, I think, by uh, Tea Party sentiments that brought people like Rand Paul, like Justin Amash, like uh, Thomas Massey, and to a uh, lesser extent, I think, Mike Lee, who are, uh, in terms of talking about issues, talking about things that libertarians like to hear, talking about things that a lot of uh, liberals would like to hear, uh, but it's not clear that their, that current of thinking is going to be broadly uh, accepted or sort of germinate through the uh, rest of the Republican Party. Well, that's certainly true. Um, it's, it's true that these days we still have an awful lot of political candidates who are pretty consistent liberal Democrats. They support the liberal position on a whole wide range of issues. You also have a lot who support the conservative position on a wide range of issues, and a lot of the argument is temperament. It is, do you yell about things like Ken Cuccinelli or do you speak mildly about your conservative views like the guy who wanted to be governor of Virginia, Bill Bowling? Um, so a lot of the, dis the dissension between the Tea Partiers and the Republican establishment really is a matter of temperament. 
But some of those people uh, in both groups are wrong from a libertarian point of view on a whole lot of issues, marriage equality, immigration, the drug war, uh, real wars, uh, all of those things. It's still very difficult to find Republicans who are on the right side. You listed a bunch of people. I think Justin Amash really is a libertarian. Most of the other people you mentioned um, strike me as conservatives with a strong interest in limitations on the power of the federal government and uh, fiscal conservatism, but not libertarian in a, a number of other issues. Dan I suppose the, uh, the question I would raise is why don't we see a parallel movement like this on the left? We have this, uh, you know, it's not simply Republicans who are now feeling uh, very alienated from the federal government. Clearly, you do have a national upswell of outrage against the NSA. And, uh, and even many people on the left are starting to realize that, wait a minute, if Obamacare has been this disastrous just with a simple website, maybe we have to rethink some of our, our principles even. So I think there is a potential for a, a strong libertarian movement on the left as well as on the right with the Tea Party. But we haven't seen it come into existence yet. It's very hard to see what channels are going to bring it into existence. That's why, even though you're quite right, of course, to make the case that uh, libertarianism is philosophically distinct from conservatism, in electoral politics, the tendency is for uh, both conservatives and libertarians to translate into Republicans. And it's hard to see how that's going to change and begin to translate into Democrats as well. Well, you're right. It's very difficult to find any people on the left who have given up the liberal democratic idea of cradle-to-grave government, that the government can tax and spend and improve society. You do have uh, a few people on the left now focusing more on issues of civil liberties and surveillance and so on. They haven't really given up their left-wing economics. They just don't talk about it as much. Also, you know, there is this partisan problem. Where the heck was the Tea Party while Bush was raising federal spending by a trillion dollars? You didn't hear anything from them. And that's a legitimate criticism from the left of where were all these fiscal conservatives? Libertarians were out there complaining uh, about Bush's overspending, but we couldn't find any of the free market conservatives who wanted to join that campaign. And similarly, now you have a lot of people on the left who are very disturbed by the fact that we're still in Iraq and Afghanistan and by the NSA revelations, but they don't want to take to the streets or start making a real issue of it because Obama's president and they don't want to betray him. But is that alignment, the fact that uh, Republicans who were not critical of President Bush uh, for his big spending ways, the fact that Republicans in some way have come home to a conservative roost does does that uh, does that move forward, or does, do you think that that is just a, a a convenient relationship? Well, it moves forward for the next two years while Obama's president. Question is, what happens if there is a Republican president? And yes, that would that would concern me. If you got another Bush-like Republican president, would the Tea Party just fade away the way the anti-war movement did? Absolutely, closed its doors turned out the lights and disappeared. Will the Tea Party movement do that? And in particular, will the Republican concerns about foreign intervention, like we heard in involving Libya and Syria, and the Republican concerns about the surveillance state dry up if there's a Republican president? It's been one of the uh, sort of risks that libertarians have faced all along, that uh, 
their issues and their perspective gets lost in the shuffle every time there's a partisan realignment. Once you have a uh, Republican in office, suddenly the Democrats become seemingly more libertarian, certainly on things like foreign policy and civil liberties. And then, of course, when you have a, a change in power, the Republicans now sound as if uh, they're becoming more libertarian on fiscal issues. Uh, but then, of course, uh, one always wonders whether that's going to persist when, uh, when uh, you know, the uh, merry-go-round uh, makes its next revolution. So um, I, I think this is a, a serious problem for libertarianism as a philosophy. On the one hand, it has many merits for not being aligned with either party or either left or right. It means that it's intellectually free in a way that the partisans of either side tend not to be. But the problem is that um, it's hard to continue to shape both sides at the same time. I mean, and, and that means that having an opportunistic alignment with either side now and, and then the other side then, um, it's, it's very hard to get consistent libertarian policies out of that. So, I, I mean, I, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm rather skeptical in some ways of the country's um, uh, disillusionment with Washington. That's very nice, but I don't know that that will necessarily translate into real political libertarianism. Yeah, one of the problems is uh, we believe there are a substantial number of Americans who are broadly libertarian in a way that sets them apart from liberals and conservatives. Not that they read Reason magazine, but that they do generally think the government should stay out of their uh, bedrooms and out of their boardrooms, that sort of thing. But they don't think of themselves as the libertarian faction in American politics. They think of themselves as conservatives who are not moral majority or maybe they think of themselves as Democrats who are not completely stupid on economics. But they don't think – which makes me kind of like those other guys and we're a faction. And that does make it very difficult uh, to exercise uh, direct political power. So what of this renewed interest then in, in federalism? This seems like a natural uh, thing that should uh, energize the libertarian uh, impulse within the Republican Party. Well, it should and of course it should also be of interest to conservatives and it's even of some interest to liberals who are saying, well, if we can't get things out of the federal government, we can get marijuana reform and gay marriage from the states. Um, so everybody has some incentive to be interested in that. The problem is whether your incentive goes away if, if you think at any given moment you're in charge of the federal government and we've seen too much of that. It's true. There's always going to be uh, a pull in the direction of the federal government. Uh, it's very you know, good to have whatever program you want and you can uh, enact it at the local level. But necessarily there's this other level to be um, conquered as well. And uh, anyone with a political philosophy is going to want to see the federal government move in their direction. So um, as, as nice as uh, federalism is, as encouraging as it is to see uh, certainly conservatives starting to take that concept more seriously, uh, there's always going to be this need for another component, which is what do you do at the federal level? And libertarians have a lot of very clear ideas there, but it's hard, I think, uh, as I've mentioned, to kind of operationalize those in uh, electoral politics and then into uh, actual policy. All right. So what do you expect uh, in 2014 and beyond? Is there, is there – as we record this, we have a budget deal that uh, manages to spend billions more next year than if we'd had no deal. Um, that seems to be a, a big uh, negative for – at, least, at the very least, reduced federal spending. Well, that's right. I think we have been thankful the past few years for divided government. I think a lot of people still don't realize federal spending peaked in 2009, and for the past three years it's been less than its 2009 peak. That's never happened. Um, 
And it's not because anybody – it's not because we won some intellectual battle and it's not because we had some uh, Ronald Reagan or Paul Ryan program get through Congress. It's because we had divided government and the two parties couldn't agree and they came up with one crazy thing. They, they lashed themselves to the mast and said, if we don't come up with a bargain, we will be bound by this thing called the sequester. Then they couldn't come up with a bargain and – the sequester is actually cutting spending. Now, it's cutting it in the smallest part of the federal budget, discretionary spending, but still, uh, that has been a good thing. It's not clear to me as we talk if this budget deal has smashed the sequester. Uh, the, the argument for it is, no, no, the sequester is still in effect. We just amend it for the next couple of years. If that's the case, it may still be okay. But, you know, it's it's kind of like once you lose your virginity, uh, now you know you can bust the sequester. Yeah, the jury's out. Uh, we'll find out uh, just how bad this uh, deal is. Certainly, there are things that have alarmed a number of people, especially in the Tea Party. Uh, the idea that there will be revenue enhancement, there will be what are getting called fees, but are, of course, in effect, taxes, including uh, higher taxes on airline passengers, for example. Uh, there are um, more defense spending, more discretionary domestic spending as well, supposedly going to be offset in the long run, but in the short run, it does look as if the uh, sequester is being somewhat unwound. So I think this is a very mixed deal, uh, a very troubling deal in some respects, and we'll find out just how much so in, as time goes on. Um, it, it does look to me as if this is going to pass, and it's probably going to give Republicans cover in both directions, which is somewhat of a bad thing. Uh, Republicans who want to say that they're really against this, uh, they'll, get, uh, they'll be able to do so. They won't have to vote for it. It'll pass mostly with Democratic votes. Uh, but the Republican Party as a whole will still get a policy that basically unwinds the sequester, which I think is what many of them have been angling for. So I, I think it muddies the waters in some respects, and it makes it very hard to um, you know, organize uh, a consistent kind of libertarian impulse in the Republican Party, especially through the Tea Party. What's the upside here? What, what good can we take into uh, this new year with respect to prospects for libertarian ideas? You know, we focus a lot on elections and on budgets. Uh, I saw an article the other day about how the budget has become the place where every political battle is fought. But that's not quite true. In One of the things that's interesting that I think will continue is if gun control, federal gun control, didn't happen in 2013, it's not going to happen in 2014. And states are going to be a lot less likely to do gun control after three Colorado legislators who supported new stricter gun controls lost their seats because of the recall process. Um, I believe we will make some progress on marijuana law reform and on marriage equality, though I suspect both will be slower than they were in 2013 because the easy states were, were gotten. Businesses will keep on investing, innovating, and creatively destructing, and we will get new uh, businesses like Uber and Lyft and Airbnb, and that's all part of progress. And we should remember in the economic freedom, world, uh, economic freedom of the World Index, the United States has fallen from, I think, third to 17th in the world. But world economic freedom has been going up in fits and starts, but fairly steadily for the past 30 years, and it will continue in 2014. So we should, we should get our heads out of the Washington budget process and take a somewhat wider view of the world. 
there's a tremendous opportunity for libertarians and for sort of more serious fiscal conservatives uh, in 2014 and going forward. There's clearly a market there. There's clearly tremendous demand within the country for some sort of major reform of our – not just our political system but even the ideological blocks as they currently exist. And I think libertarians are very much ahead of the curve on that. They've been trying to be innovative for a very long time now and so many other uh, people – and again, I tend to think politically speaking they're on the right – but so many other people are still stuck fighting the battles of the 1980s, for example. And Libertarians clearly are not doing that. They are thinking ahead. So the question becomes, can you start to uh, inject some libertarian elements into these other uh, coalitions and into these other groups uh, in politics? And certainly, as I say, the demand is there, both on the left and on the right. There are people who want to start asking some of these hard questions that the established ideological blocs don't answer. And uh, libertarians have an opportunity. It's a matter of uh, just how to take advantage of it. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Daniel McCarthy, editor of the American Conservative Magazine, and David Bose, executive vice president of the Cato Institute. You can read more on these issues at our website, cato.org, and read more on the broad progress of humanity on our new website, humanprogress.org. Wisconsin Representative James Sensenbrenner, former chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, isn't moved by executive branch claims that your phone calls are relevant to terrorism investigations because they're data points that create patterns. He wants to alter many provisions of the Patriot Act and wants to shut down NSA metadata programs, and sooner rather than later. He spoke at the Cato Institute's conference on NSA surveillance in October. I was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee when our country was attacked on September 11th. Five days after the attack, the Justice Department delivered its proposal for new legislation. Although I, along with every other American, knew we had to strengthen our ability to combat those targeting our country, the department's version went far too far. I believe then and now that we can defend our country and our liberty at the same time. I called then House Speaker Dennis Hastert I told the speaker that if the legislation moved as drafted, I would not only vote against it, but I would actively oppose it. The country wanted action, and the White House was pressuring us to move its bill. To his credit, Speaker Hastert promised us more time. There were endless meetings and nonstop negotiations with the White House, the FBI, and the intelligence community. The question we grappled with could not have been more fundamental. How could we defend our liberty and protect the American people at the same time? The final draft in the House Judiciary Committee was bipartisan and passed the committee unanimously, with Bob Barr on the right and Maxine Waters on the left and everybody else voting in favor of it. Since the 2006 reauthorization, Section 215 of the Patriot Act allows for the collection of certain business records when there are reasonable grounds to believe that the records are relevant to an authorized investigation. The target could not be a U.S. person defined as either a citizen or a green card holder. The legal term is relevance. A similar relevance standard is repeated in other intelligence gathering authorities, such as Title IV of FISA and the National Security Letter Statutes. Under this standard, the administration has collected the details of every call made by every American. The logic it uses to support bulk collection of phone records would also support the bulk collection of other records, raising the question 
What other records is the administration collecting in bulk? And just how deeply is the government intruding into our daily lives? Since first learning of this program this spring, I have been a vocal critic of dragnet collection as a gross invasion of privacy and a violation of the relevant standard in law. The phone records of innocent Americans do not relate to terrorism whatsoever, and they are not reasonably likely to lead to information that relates to terrorism. Put simply, the phone calls we make to our friends, our families, and business associates are private and have nothing to do with terrorism or the government's efforts to stop it. The arguments to the contrary are not compelling. As the administration explains it, all of our phone records are relevant because the connections between individual data points are of potential value. But these private collections are only of value if they in some way relate to terrorism. To the extent that they don't, the government has no right to collect them. The government claims it needs the haystack to find the needle, but gathering the haystack and making it larger without knowledge that it contains the needle is precisely what the relevant standard was supposed to prevent. In my three and a half decades in Congress, I have been engaged in countless debates about what threshold the government should have to meet to access private information. These debates have happened in both the criminal and national security contexts, but today's debate is distantly removed from those discussions. The administration essentially believes that there is no threshold at all. This is something that Congress never would have authorized, and since the administration has assumed this authority, Congress should not hesitate to stop it and stop it quickly. While I recognize that we're in the middle of a bitter partisan battle over government funding, such as Obamacare and the debt limit, I am confident that we can find a broad and bipartisan solution. In the next few days, Senator Leahy, Ranking Member Conyers, and I, along with other members who are passionate about civil liberties, plan to introduce the, quote, the uniting and strengthening America by fulfilling rights and ending eavesdropping, dragnet collection, and online monitor monitoring act, which will be better known as the USA Freedom Act. <laughs> this comprehensive le legislation will end the bulk collection of Americans' communications records by adopting a uniform standard for intelligence gathering under Section 215 of the Patriot Act. Let me make it quite clear. It ends the NSA's ability to collect what they call a metadata program. Title IV of FISA and each of the national security letters would also be amended. The bill would protect uh, Americans by tightening Section 702 of FISA as well. The administration has proven beyond a reasonable doubt, in my opinion, that any standard can be abused. So it is also critical that we increase transparency. We don't need to have an Edward Snowden to let us know what is going on there. We need more transparency, and there's a way to do it. For many fields of science, there was little doubt that the period of 1830 to 1965 was a golden age. There was also little doubt that changes in the support structure for science since the late 1960s have powerful elements that serve to inhibit major developments. 
Richard Lindzen is a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for the Study of Science at the Cato Institute and an emeritus Sloan professor of meteorology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He argues these changes have altered climate science. He spoke at the Cato Institute in November. For almost three centuries, science has had a glorious run. The power of the paradigm of dialectic opposition of theory and observations helped us gain a great deal of access to nature's secrets. And not only that, but revolutionized our world. It also gained for science the admiration and trust of the world. And therein lay a trap. Credibility and trust are commodities that are powerfully envied and sought by political leaders and movements of all sorts. It is not for nothing that Marxism was called scientific socialism. It is not an accident that atheists cling to neo-Darwinian evolution as a dogma. Unfortunately, when science becomes a source of authority, it loses much of its value as a mode of inquiry. The co-optation of climate science for political and ideological ends is by no means unique. I've already mentioned two other examples. But its remarkable success warrants careful study. And while enough books have been written to put Ecclesiastes to shame, much of the story remains to be explored and understood. The present lecture hardly pretends to achieve this. What I would like instead is to appeal to talented social scientists and historians to begin looking at various aspects of the issue. We'll come to more of that later. Though most people, I find, are under the impression that global warming is a recent issue, anyone who's been studying the issue or observing it quickly realizes that it has many roots extending from the elite obsession with Malthusian limits and the concomitant obsession with population to the nominal energy crises of the 70s. Now, when one gets back to the 60s and 70s, there's something that I'll come back to in a moment, but it's, it's worth remembering. Within science, there was a major change. And the change I'm referring to was the shift from the gratitude that characterized support of science between World War II, at least in America, and 65, the Vannevar Bush report, the, the feeling, you know, science did not have to defend itself. The atom bomb, penicillin, radar, all left the world convinced, and at least America convinced, science was worthwhile. There were 20 years that I consider a golden age for American science, not only the infusion of European scientists, but the generous support and remarkable freedom of that period led to an efflorescence that I think is still remarkable. What I remember, even as a young person at that time, as a kid, essentially, for much of that period, was that you know, at mealtime, there was shop talk that slowly deteriorated. 
What happened, I think, was in the 60s with the Vietnam War and budget constraints, you had the first major cuts in scientific budgets since World War II. And suddenly there was the recognition that science was dispensable. And uh, the comparable realization that gratitude was not a stable source of support, that fear was better. We'll come back to that later. But you suddenly had all sorts of uh, groups figuring out how to make science relevant through fear rather than gratitude. For a long time, CO2 looked like a good candidate. It had certainly been proposed by someone called Calendar in 1939 to account for the temperature rise from about 1919 to 39. It had been hotly argued during the 50s in the atmospheric science community. There were even prominent people declaring CO2 cooled rather than warm. But by the time the dust had settled, <coughs> it was understood that uh, CO2 warmed but very modestly. Doubling of CO2 is good for a degree or so. This didn't seem to be enough to produce fear. There was then work by Suki Minabe and his colleague Weatherald, and this was at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory, then in Washington, subsequently in Princeton, where he realized, and they realized, that if you made an assumption, an assumption which incidentally is not correct or justified, the assumption was if in a changing climate relative humidity remained a constant, then they found you could double the impact of CO2. And the situation was even better than that, so to speak. Um, the response equals the response without feedbacks over one minus the sum of the feedback factors. What they found was that their constant relative humidity led to a feedback factor of 0.5, plus 0.5. That's a positive feedback. So one minus 0.5 is 0.5, and you've doubled the effect. But the more significant effect with this equation is, what happens if you add another 0.5? What does the response go to? Infinity. So basically, once you get 0.5 in the door, you can add just a little and it skyrockets. That incidentally is why over this long period since 79, when the National Academy first looked at the sensitivity, the answer has continued to remain one and a half to four and a half degrees. In the 12 years since the creation of the TSA, it has become clear that the federal takeover of airport security was a mistake. Kalia Barnes is Administrative Law Counsel at the Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC, she says the TSA deploys visible intermodal prevention and response squads, or VIPER, to perform random sweeps of individuals outside of airports. She argues these practices are devoid of true legal standards like probable cause. She spoke at a Capitol Hill briefing in November. 
So Epic, uh, in a reciprocal fashion, has closely followed the TSA's actions. TSA is always following what the public does, so Epic has been following what TSA has done. And we've noticed at least two things over the last few years. And number one is that, uh, as Congressman Garrett uh, discussed, the agency has gradually exceeded its authority. And number two, as it can is it continues to expand its authority, it's moving from a more objective standards to more subjective standards, more nebulous. We, we see a lot of this risk-based assessment. You hear that a lot in the airports. You hear that a lot with Viper. So that's really where TSA has moved. And to talk about first the, the body scanners, that's a prime example of number one, the agency exceeded its authority because it deployed body scanners without first taking public comment as was required by the Administrative Procedure Act. So that's one of the prime examples of the agency exceeding its authority and two, moving to more nebulous standards. Initially, body scanners were designed to detect threats. Uh, but what we saw in the proposed rule is that TSA has now moved to look for anomalies, right? And what's an anomaly? And in our comments, as well as Cato, many other people brought up this issue. If you are a person who wears a medical device, oftentimes you go through the scanners and then you're pulled aside for an invasive pat down. We also had many members of the transgender community say, we're going through these body scanners and then our privacy is being violated because the TSA TSA is looking for quote-unquote anomalies. It's not really clear what they're looking for. Uh, and the same can be true, to, can be said about TSA Viper. Number one, the agency is exceeding its authority. It's really encroaching on state and local law enforcement territory. Um, if you read the New York Times article, you see that whatever TSA, to the extent that TSA has found anything, it's local and state crimes. It's evidence of prostitution. It's evidence of uh, petty drug crimes. That's not why the agency was established, and that's not within the purview of the agency's jurisdiction. So number one, the agency exceeds its statutory authority, and, and number two is moving towards nebulous standards. The agency, and, and this relates to the GAO report from yesterday, is really deploying the behavioral de detection operation. Once again, looking for risk-based type of behavior. We're not talking probable cause. We're not even talking reasonable suspicion. Now, why does this matter? Where do civil liberties come into play? Well, civil, civil liberties absolutely depend on bright line rules, right? So the bright line rules, number one, grant individuals certain rights, and number two, impose obligations on the government. So you have the right to be protected from unreasonable searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment. And what does the government have to do if it wants to perform a search? It's obligated to obtain a warrant. But right now, what the TSA Viper team has done is said, we're really adhering to, and Congressman Garrett hit the nail on the head, a general warrant standard. And in that purview, and in, in that instance, you don't have any type of rights to be protected when TSA approaches individuals. It's not state and local law enforcement saying, we have a warrant, we have probable cause, right? And then it also removes any obligation on TSA to search individuals with a warrant, to stop individuals subject to probable cause or reasonable suspicion. And when we're dealing with general warrants, that's where the privacy violations uh, appear because there's no check on any type of government power. They can stop for whatever uh, they see fit. And also, 
one of the issues, another issue uh, that arises is really the TSA Viper program is missing what we always call for in the privacy community, which is meaningful transparency, meaningful accountability, and meaningful oversight. First, let's talking about transparency. Um, previously, TSA would say, oh, you know, we, we were, um, we can't discuss exactly uh, what we've uncovered, right? There, there was no form of transparency. And not only was there, there was no transparency in the results, as the New York Times article pointed out, the, the, then the TSA Viper uh, team started classifying their results. Additionally, with the transparency, this goes back to the fact that there aren't objective standards. It's not clear, it's not transparent what the government agency is looking for. Uh, number two, there's no accountability with TSA Viper uh, programs. If a police officer was to come in here today, rifle through your bags, you could hold him or her accountable. You could say, you didn't do this with a warrant. You didn't meet your obligations, and that officer would be held to task. That's not the case with the TSA Viper, because the TSA Viper teams, because they're operating not pursuant to any type of warrant. They don't really have to answer your questions when, they're, when you say, well, why would you search? And they say, well, this is an administrative uh, warrant, which is very broad and amounts to a general warrant. And also, uh, administrative, uh, administrative searches, rather, really are to only operate within the airport context. But what the agency has done is apply this outside of the airport context. Uh, and number three, there's really no meaningful oversight. Congressman Garrett, the work that he's doing will lead uh, to reining back in uh, the agency. Uh, we did, however, get some form of oversight with the GAO report, and what it revealed is this behavioral detection, this risk-based assessment isn't working, and it's encroaching on rights. Last year, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin Dempsey, contended that, quote, we are living the most dangerous time in my lifetime right now. This year, he said, is worse. But that's not clearly true. American perceptions of the newer non-state threats may represent a disconnect with reality. Paul Pilar of Georgetown University spoke at the Cato Institute's October conference on the dangers of our world. I'm going to make an argument that includes uh, the following points. One is that non-state threats are not as new as we tend to think. Uh, secondly, that American perceptions of non-state threats have at least as much to do with how we Americans uh, view our own needs and our own habits and our own way of looking at America's place in the world as they do with the reality of the threat that's beyond our borders. That there's a disconnect between perception and reality in that regard that is mostly in the direction of overstating threats and that recent experience demonstrates uh, that there are severe limitations on what the U.S. can do about any of this. Now, as far as the uh, newness is concerned, Austin has already spoken about U.S. history. Let me just go back a little bit farther. Uh, the Romans were dealing with rebellion and insurrection and insurgency and terrorism and civil war. So, you know, all, all that stuff's been around and much more has been around really for centuries, if not millennia. As far as the American view of things are concerned, I should apologize at the outset to John Quincy Adams, who was probably speaking accurately when he spoke. But America does go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And indeed, we Americans tend to define our place in the world to a large extent with regard to how we are standing up to confronting and vanquishing particular monsters. 
During the Cold War, the USSR served the role of monster very well, and then the Cold War was over and the Soviet Union collapsed, and we kind of fumbled around for about 10 years deciding what sort of era we were in. And then along came 9-11, and we had someone declare a war on terror, and a lot of people thought, well, that, now we've got a new monster. Uh, and it's, it's served that purpose, um, particularly um, in the way in which a lot of the other non-state threats that we're talking about and that come under the purview of this panel in terms of uh, weapons proliferation, civil wars, uh, organized crime, are often evaluated in terms of what their connection might be to terrorism. Now, to assess the actual degree of threat, and what I'm going to say here is consistent with what Austin said, it's just a kind of different cut at it, I think you have to consider different possible ways in which the activity of sub-state actors in general can threaten U.S. interests. And I can think of three basic ways in particular. One is that sub-state violence may give rise to possible new hostile regimes, hostile to us. That's a way of looking at things that we, we uh, got into the habit of uh, viewing the world during the Cold War. You know, civil wars and insurgencies would take place, and what worried, about, uh, what worried us at the time was, is there going to be a new Soviet ally that will emerge, you know, from this civil war? Uh, there are several reasons why the actual threat or any imperative to do something about this for this reason is very limited. One is we are not facing a monolith on the other side with whom we are engaging in a zero-sum game. That wasn't even the case during the Cold War, even though we often perceived it that way. It's even less the case now. It's hard to predict what the orientation of a new regime is going to be based just on its pronouncements and behavior as an opposition movement. And one reason it's hard to do that is that incumbency has a major effect. Once in power, a regime has assets. It has a fixed address. It has a stake in being part of a larger international system that it didn't have when it was a mere opposition movement or guerrilla movement or insurgency or what have you. It has more to lose. Globalization has a lot to do with this, and we've seen the effects in such things as the reduction in state-sponsored terrorism over the last 25 years or so, particularly highlighted by the amazing turnaround of someone like Muammar Gaddafi a little over a decade ago. Uh, not being part of the globalized system had caused him to pay a real price. A second possible way in which the substate violence and disorder can threaten us is by non-state actors directly harming our interests, even if they never take power as a regime. And here is where we're mainly talking about terrorist groups, and I'm not going to say much about this because it's really been covered by Max and others. Um, I just make a couple of additional points. One is that how Americans see terrorism through the years has been affected at least as much by our own political and emotional milieu of the time as it has by what the terrorists are actually doing out there. And I would ask you to think about the 1970s, when we had, during much of the middle part of that decade, a whole lot of terrorism that was going on right here in the United States, including a car bomb a few blocks away from here, uh, a bomb in the uh, U.S. Capitol building, and a whole lot else. But we didn't declare a war on terror because we were just coming out of Watergate, coming out of Vietnam. We had much more, much different views about what our security agencies ought to be doing or ought not to be doing. It had a lot more to do with us rather than what terrorists were doing. And the other point I'd make is that, well, Al-Qaeda 
has filled in, to some extent, the role of, of uh, monster to destroy. We've used that term in such a loose way that it reifies something that really isn't out there in the sense that even many so-called al-Qaeda affiliates are much more concerned with local issues than with going after us. And that Osama bin Laden, when he was alive, never did get a strong consensus among even Sunni militants for his whole idea of going after the far enemy, namely us, rather than the near enemy. A third way in which this kind of sub-state violence can threaten our interest is that the very violence and instability itself is a problem. Not just that there's a particular group that can hurt us or that somebody forms a new regime. And this, this kind of concern can take two forms. One, and this gets back to terrorism again, is the idea of terrorists exploiting disorderly places of the world to create new safe havens. And there are two problems with this line of thinking. There are two limitations to it. One is really disorderly places are not a very good place for terrorists to operate for the same general reasons it's not a very good place for legitimate operations to operate. It's harder for them to do things when they're surrounded by nothing but disorder. They rely on some orderly infrastructure and communication and so on as well, just as the rest of us do. The other point is that safe havens, as far as terrorist groups are concerned, are quite frankly overrated. And if you look at the, um, uh, what are the main ingredients to the degree of threat that an al-Qaeda or someone else poses, it has less to do with having a particular chunk of real estate than it does with a lot of other things, ideological appeal, technical ability, and so on. But the idea of a safe haven appeals to our spatial way of thinking about threats and whether we're winning or losing. The other aspect of instability itself and civil war being a, a problem is the idea of civil wars spreading. And this could endanger more of our interests. And I would argue that true spread of a civil war actually is confined to some pretty specific geographic circumstances, like some artillery shells from the Syrian civil war finding their way across the Turkish border. Uh, the Iraq war never really did spread, and still hasn't, as much in a really literal sense of spread uh, than many people feared. However, it is clearly true that civil war and disorder can have other sorts of contagion or demonstration effects, even if it's not literally a spread of the civil war. And we can look at the whole phenomenon that we call the Arab Spring over the last three years. Clearly, there are contagion effects here of, what, of disorder in one country having an effect on what's going on someplace else. The problem is this really doesn't give us a clear implication as far as U.S. policy is concerned, both because it's not always apparent what's good and what's bad from the standpoint of U.S. interest. And even if it were clear, most of this is unpredictable in terms of where it starts and how it's going to play out. No one could have predicted that the abuse of a Tunisian fruit vendor three years ago was going to be the starting point for what we call the Arab Spring. The Federal Reserve has always had broad powers to intervene in financial markets. The limits on that power are essential. But those limits have been stressed over the last four years of Fed action, such as the Fed engaging in effective credit allocation. Charles Plosser is president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. He delivered remarks at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference in November. So when Jim told me that this year's conference is entitled, Was the Fed a Good Idea?, I must confess, I was a little worried. I noticed that I was the only sitting central banker on the program. Um, and I didn't know whether to be 
flattered or content. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, as Jim said, the Fed is approaching its 100th anniversary. And I think it is entirely appropriate to reflect on its history and its future. Today, I plan to discuss what I believe the Federal Reserve's essential role is and consider how it might be improved as an institution. Now, before I begin, I have to, use the, have to apply the usual disclaimers that my views are not necessarily those of the Federal Reserve System or my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee, and they are internally grateful when I make that statement. So uh, Doug North was the co-winner in 1993 of the Nobel Prize in Economics, and he earned it for his work on the role of institutions. North argued that institutions were deliberately devised to constrain interactions among parties, both public and private. In the spirit of North's work, one theme of my talk today will be the institutional structure of central banks. The central bank's goals and objectives, its framework for implementing policy, and its governance structure all affect its performance. Now, central banks have been around for a long time. They have clearly evolved over time as economies have evolved and governments have changed. Most countries today operate under a fiat money regime in which the nation's currency has value because the government says it does. Central banks usually are given the responsibility to protect or preserve the value of the purchasing power of that fiat currency. Now, in the United States, the Fed does so by buying or selling assets in order to manage the growth of money and credit. The ability to buy and sell assets gives the Fed considerable power to intervene in financial markets, not only through the quantity of its transactions, but also through the types of assets it can buy and sell. Thus, it's entirely appropriate that governments establish their central banks with limits that constrain the actions of the institution to one degree or another. Yet in recent years, we've seen many of the, both the explicit and implicit limits on central banks pushed to their limits. The Fed and many other central banks have taken extraordinary steps to address a global financial crisis and the ensuing recession. These steps have challenged the accepted boundaries of central banking and have been both applauded and denounced. For example, the Fed has adopted unconventional large-scale asset purchases to increase accommodation after it reduced the conventional policy tool, the federal funds rate, to near zero. These asset purchases have led to the creation of trillions of dollars of reserves in the banking system and have greatly expanded the Fed's balance sheet. But the Fed has done more than just purchase lots of assets. It has also altered the composition of its balance sheet through the types of assets it's purchased. I've spoken a number, on a number of occasions about my concerns that these actions to purchase specific non-Treasury assets amount to a form of credit allocation which targets specific industries, sectors, or firms. These credit policies cross the boundary, in my view, from monetary policy and venture into the realm of fiscal policy. I included this category of purchases, the purchase of mortgage-backed securities, as well as the emergency lending done under 16, uh, Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act in support of the bailouts, most notably of Bear Stearns and AIG. Regardless for the re rationale for these actions, one needs to consider uh, the long-term repercussions of such actions and what they may have for the central bank as an institution. As we contemplate what the Fed of the future should look like, 
I wanted to consider whether constraints on its goals might help limit the range of objectives it could use to justify its actions. I'll also consider restrictions on the types of assets it can purchase to limit its interference with market allocations of scarce capital, and thus generally to avoid engaging in actions that are best left to the fiscal authorities or the markets. Finally, I'll also touch on governance and accountability of our institution in ways to implement policies that limit discretion and improve both outcomes and accountability. So let me begin by addressing the goals and objectives for the Federal Reserve. These have evolved over time. When the Fed was first established in 1913, the U.S. and the world were operating under a classical gold standard. Therefore, price stability was not among the stated objectives of the, Federal, of the original Federal Reserve Act. Indeed, the primary objective in the preamble was to provide, as Jim said, an elastic currency. The gold standard has some very desirable features. Domestic and international legal commitments regarding convertibility were important disciplining devices. They were essential to the regime's ability to deliver price stability. The gold standard was a de facto rule that most people understood and it allowed markets to function more efficiently because the price level was mostly stable in that regime. But the international gold standard began to unravel and was abandoned during World War I. After the war, efforts to reestablish parity proved disruptive and costly both economically and politically. Attempts to reestablish a gold standard fell apart completely in the 1930s. As a result, most of the world now operates under a fiat money regime, as I said, which has made price stability an important priority for those central banks in, in charged with ensuring the purchasing power of their currency. Now, Congress established the current set of monetary policy goals in 1978. The amended Federal Reserve Act specifies that the Fed, and here I'm quoting from the Federal Reserve Act, shall ma maintain long-run growth of money and credit aggregates commensurate with the economy's long-run potential to increase production. So to promote effectively the goals of maximum employment, price stability, and moderate long-term interest rates." Unquote. Since moderate long-term interest rates are usually the result when prices are stable and the economy is operating near full employment, many have interpreted these goals as the dual mandate, with price stability and maximum employment as the focus. But let me point out that the instructions for Congress call for the SOMC to stress long-term growth of money and credit with the economy's long-run potential. Now, there are many other things Congress could have said, but it didn't. The fact, um, the Act doesn't talk about managing short-term credit allocations across sectors, doesn't mention inflating housing prices or other assets, it also doesn't mention anything about reducing short-term fluctuations in employment. Many discussion about, discussion about the Fed's mandate seemed to forget, or at least overlook, its emphasis on the long run. The public, perhaps even some within the Fed, have come to accept, accept as an axiom that monetary policy can and should attempt to manage fluctuations in employment. Rather than simply set a monetary environment commensurate with the long-run potential to increase production, unquote, these individuals seek policies that attempt to manage the fluctuations in employment over the short run. Now, the active pursuit of employment objectives has, has been and continues to be problematic for the Fed. Most economists are dubious of the ability of monetary policy 
to predictably and precisely control employment in the short run. And there is a strong consensus that in the long run, monetary policy cannot determine employment. As the FOMC noted in its own statement on longer-run goals adopted in 2012, and I quote, the maximum level of employment is largely determined by non-monetary factors that affect the structure and dynamics of the labor market. In my view, focusing on short-run control of employment weakens the credibility and effectiveness of the Fed in achieving its price stability objective. We learned this lesson most dramatically during the 1970s, when despite extensive efforts to reduce unemployment, the Fed essentially failed. The nation experienced a prolonged period of high unemployment and high inflation. The economy paid a price in the form of a deep recession as the Fed sought to restore the credibility of its commit commitment to price stability. So when establishing the long-term goals and objectives for any organization, and particularly one that serves the public, it is essential that the goals be achievable. Assigning unachievable goals to organizations is a recipe for their failure. For the Fed, it could mean a loss of public confidence. I fear that the public has come to expect too much from its central bank, and too much from monetary policy in particular. I believe we need to heed the words of another Nobel Prize winner, Milton Friedman. In 1967, at his presidential address to the American Economic Association, he said, and I quote, we are in danger of assigning to monetary policy a larger role than it can perform, in danger of asking it to accomplish tasks it cannot achieve, and as a result, in danger of preventing it from making the contributions that it is capable of making, unquote. In the 1970s, we saw the wisdom of Friedman's earlier admonitions. I think that over the past 40 years, with the exception of perhaps the Paul Volcker era, we failed to heed this warning. We have assigned an ever-expanding role for monetary policy, and we expect our central bank to solve all manner of economic woes for which it is ill-suited to address. We need to better align the expectations of monetary policy for what it is actually capable of achieving. The so-called dual mandate has contributed to this expansionary view of the powers of monetary policy. Even though in 2012, the Statement of Objectives acknowledged that it is inappropriate to set a fixed goal for employment and that maximum employment is influenced by many other factors, FOMC's recent policy statements have increasingly given the impression that it wants to, it wants to achieve a specific employment goal as quickly as possible. I believe that the aggressive pursuit of broad and expansive objectives is really quite risky and they could have very undesirable repercussions down the road, including undermining the public's confidence in the institution, its legitimacy, and ultimately its independence. To put this in a different terms, assigning multiple objectives for a central bank opens the door for highly discretionary policies, which can be justified by shifting the focus or rationale for action from goal to goal, pillar to post. I've concluded that it would be appropriate to redefine the Fed's monetary goals to focus solely, or at least primarily, on price stability. I base this on two observations. First, monetary policy has very limited ability to influence real variables such as employment. And in a regime with fiat currency, only the central bank can ensure price stability. Indeed, price stability is the one goal that the central bank can achieve over the longer run. 
But even with a narrow mandate to focus on price stability, the institution must be well designed if it's to be effective and successful. To meet the, even this narrow mandate, the central bank must have a fair amount of independence from the political process so that it can set policy for the long run without pressure to print money as a substitute for tough fiscal choices. I believe good governance requires a healthy degree of separation between those responsible for taxes and expenditures and those responsible for printing money. The original design of the Fed's governance recognized the importance of such independence. Consider its decentralized public-private structure with governors appointed by the U.S. President and confirmed by the Senate, and Fed presidents chosen by their boards of directors. This design helps ensure a diversity of views and a more decentralized governance structure that I think reduces the potential for abuses and capture by special interests or political agendas. It also reinforces the independence of monetary policymaking, and that leads to better economic outcomes. Such independence in a democracy also necessitates that the central bank remain accountable. Its activities need to be constrained in a manner that limits its discretionary authorities. As I've already argued, a narrow mandate is an important limiting factor on, this on an expansionist view of the role of and scope for monetary policy. But what other sorts of constraints are appropriate in the activities of central banks? I believe that monetary policy and fiscal policy should, policy should have clear boundaries. Independence is what Congress can and should grant the Fed. But in exchange for such independence, the central bank should be constrained from conducting fiscal policy. As I've already mentioned, the Fed is venturing in the realm of fiscal policy by its purchase programs of assets that target various industries or individual firms. One way to circumscribe such quasi-fiscal actions is to limit the types of assets that the Fed can hold on its balance sheet. Now, in its system open market account, the Fed is allowed to hold only U.S. government securities and securities that are direct obligations or fully guaranteed by agencies of the United States. But these restrictions still allow the Fed to purchase large volumes of mortgage-backed securities in its effort to boost the housing sector. My preference would be to limit the Fed's purchases to Treasury securities and return the Fed's balance sheet to an all-Treasuries portfolio. This would limit the ability of Fed to engage in credit policies that target specific industries. As I've already noted, such programs to allocate credit rightfully belong in the realm of the fiscal authorities, not the central bank. A third way to constrain the central bank's actions is to direct the monetary authority to conduct policy in a systematic or rule-like manner. It's often difficult for policymakers to choose a systematic rule-like approach as it would tie their hands and thus limit their discretionary authority. Yet research throughout the years has discussed the benefits of rule-like behavior, for, and, um, and they've discovered that rules are tra transparent and therefore allow for simpler and more effective communications of policy. Moreover, a large body of research emphasizes the important role expectations play in determining economic outcomes. When policy is set systematically, the public and financial market participants can form better expectations about policy. Policy is thus no longer a source of instability or uncertainty. Now, while choosing an appropriate rule is important, 
Research shows that a wide, in a wide variety of models, there are simple, robust monetary rules that can produce outcomes very close to those delivered by each model's optimal policy. Systematic policy can also help preserve a central bank's independence. When the public has a better understanding of policymakers' intentions, it's able to hold the central bank more accountable for its actions. And the rule-like behavior helps to keep policy focused on the central bank's more narrow objectives, limiting discretionary actions that may wander towards other agendas and other goals. Congress is not the appropriate body to determine the form of such a rule. However, Congress could direct the monetary authority to communicate the broad guidelines they will use to conduct policy. One way this might work is to require the Fed to publicly describe how it will systematically conduct policy in normal times. This might be incorporated into the semi-annual monetary policy report submitted to Congress. This would hold the Fed accountable. The FOMC chooses to deviate from the guidelines, which they may do sometimes. It must then explain why and how it intends to return to those prescribed guidelines. My sense is that the recent difficulty the Fed has faced in trying to offer clear and transparent guidance on its current and future policy stems from the fact that policymakers still desire to maintain discretion in setting monetary policy, thus not to be bound by rule-like behavior. Effective forward guidance, however, requires commitment, commitment to behave in a particular way in the future. But discretion is the antithesis of commitment and undermines the effectiveness of forward guidance. So given this tension between discretion and commitment, few should be surprised that the Fed struggled with its communication. So what's the answer? Well, I see three that I've been talking about. Simplify the goals, constrain the tools, and make decisions more systematically. All three steps can lead to clearer communications and a better understanding on the part of the public of what monetary policy is doing. Creating a stronger monetary policy framework will ultimately produce better economic outcomes. Before concluding, I'd like to say a few words about the role the central bank plays in promoting financial stability. Since the financial crisis, there has been an expansion of the Fed's responsibilities for controlling macro prudential and systemic risk. Some have even called for an expansion of the monetary policy mandate to include the explicit goal of financial stability. I think this would be a mistake. The Fed plays an important role, and should, as the lender of last resort, offering liquidity to solvent firms in times of extreme financial stress to forestall contagion and mitigate systemic risk. This liquidity is intended to help ensure that solvent firms facing temporary liquidity problems, remain solvent, and that there is sufficient liquidity in the banking system to meet the demand for currency. In this sense, liquidity lending is simply providing an elastic currency. Thus, the role of lender of last resort is not to prop up insolvent institutions or sovereigns, for that matter. However, in some cases during the crisis, the Fed played a role in the resolution of particularly, particular insolvent firms that were deemed systemically important. Subsequently, the Dodd-Frank Act has limited some of the lending actions the Fed can take with individual firms under Section 13.3.
Nonetheless, by taking these actions, the Fed has created expectations, perhaps unrealistic ones, about what the Fed can and should do to combat financial instability. Just as it is true for monetary policy, it's important to be clear about the Fed's responsibility for promoting financial stability. I think it's unrealistic to expect the central bank to alleviate all systemic risk in financial markets. Expanding the Fed's regulatory responsibilities too broadly increases the chances that there will be short-run conflicts between its monetary policy goals and its supervisory and regulatory goals. This should be avoided as, once again, it undermines the credibility of the institution and allows for vast discretion. Similarly, the central bank should set limits and communicate those limits and guidelines for its lending policies that it can, that it can credibly commit to follow. The set of institutions having regular access to Fed credit facilities has expanded too far. It will create moral hazard, distort market mechanisms for allocating credit. This can end up undermining the very financial stability it's supposed to be promoting. Emergencies can and do arise, as we all know. So if the Fed is asked by the fiscal authorities to intervene by allocating credit to particular firms or sectors of the economy, then the, the Treasury should take these assets off the Fed's balance sheet and exchange them for Treasury securities. In 2009, almost, almost four years ago, I advocated that we establish a new accord between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve that protects the Fed in just such a way. It would help ensure that when credit policies put taxpayer funds at risk in the name of an emergency, they are the responsibility of the fiscal authorities, not the Fed. This new accord would also return control of the Fed's balance sheet back to the Fed so that it can con continue to conduct independent monetary policy. The overemphasis on democracy by today's legal community rather than the primacy of liberty as expressed in the Declaration of Independence has helped expand the scope of government power at the expense of individual rights. In his new book, The Conscience of the Constitution, Tim Sandifer provides a new challenge to much of constitutional law, that our Constitution was written not to empower democracy, but to secure liberty. Get your copy today at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.